name is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light. And we shall Thank you, Chad. Thank you, Nicole. Good morning, High Point. My name is Femi. Um, I'll be reading the scripture for today, and this is coming out of Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 14 through 17 in Joshua chapter 3. That can be found on page 304 in your pew Bible, and I hope that you all had a Merry Christmas. Joshua chapter 3, starting from verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at the flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarathon. While the water flowing down to the sea of the Araba, that is, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And from Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, page 306. Starting from verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse, and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. Good morning, everyone. My name is Nicole Kyle. I'm a part of the worship team, and I'm on the staff team. I've been here for a few years. Um, and it's my pleasure to introduce who, our preacher this morning. 
our preacher this morning is Paxton. So before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about something we really value at High Point, which is being a teaching church. That could mean a lot of different things, but one of the things that it means is this. Madison's a really transient city. There are a lot of people who come here for a time and then leave, whether they're coming for undergrad or to get a PhD or if they're coming for a job and then they find a different one and they leave. And so at High Point, we really try to provide opportunities for people to grow in their skills and their gifts and their faith so that wherever God may send them after their time in Madison, they will continue to be a part of building God's kingdom there. And one of the ways that we do that is through our internship program. So Paxton has been interning with us for this past semester. He's a senior at UW. He's been interning with us. He'll keep on interning. And he's been having a few opportunities to teach while he's been here. And this morning, this is his first chance to teach here during our service. So whenever we have someone new preaching here, or um, particularly in this instance, someone who may have less experience than you might be used to, or less age than you might be used to, there are a few things that we need to remember, okay? So there are three things. The first thing that you and I need to do while he is preaching is pay attention and learn something. The same Holy Spirit that is in Nick when he's preaching and Lloyd when he's preaching and Vince when he's preaching, that is the same Holy Spirit that is preaching through Paxton this morning. And it doesn't matter that some of you think of him and you say, well, he looks like the age of my child. That's okay, because also the same Holy Spirit is in your children who are believers as well. The same power. Amen? Okay, so number one, Listen to him and learn something. That's your responsibility to learn something, not his. Okay. Um, thing number two, there may be a few things that he says that you don't really like, or maybe you think that Pastor Lloyd would have said it funnier, or um, maybe you think Vince would have been a little more clever with it. Okay, that's fine. This morning is not the time for you to give him all of your criticism. Okay? If there's something that you think, if there's feedback you think he needs to hear, that's great. Tell me or tell Vince and we will pass it on. But this is not the time for you to go up to Paxton afterwards or especially in the middle of the service and to say to him, I don't agree with that. Don't do that today. That's not the time to do that. And the last thing, this is the day to give him encouragement. Because we do want him to be built in his skills and his gifts. And so if there is something that God did through him this morning, a word that he spoke to you through Paxton, or if you were encouraged at all, if you are convicted, if you are challenged, share those things with him and encourage him in the ways that you see God moving in his life. So pay attention and learn. Don't give him criticism. Do give him encouragement. Sound good? All right. Paxton, you can come on up now. All right. Thanks. What an intro. It's good. Set me up. Woo. Morning, everybody. My name is Paxton. I'm a pastoral intern here at High Point Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. So to start us off, I have some good news I have some bad news, and the good news I'm going to share first because I think it's exciting, but it has absolutely nothing to do with my sermon. So, but the good news is this: I got engaged this past Tuesday. Let's celebrate that! Yeah, that's good for me, right? I'm, I'm very excited to go and ride off into the sunset with Morgan. It's going to be great. So, the bad news, though, sadly, has everything to do with my sermon. The bad news, bad news is this: most of us tend to live 
without any expectation that God is going to intervene in our daily lives. And I'm not talking about those of us who are non-Christian. I'm talking about those of us who are Christian. Most of us who are Christian tend to live without any expectation that God's going to intervene in our daily lives. And that should shock you or surprise you because being a Christian is all about believing in a certain type of God. The type of God who is personal, who cares deeply about each person in this room and chooses to love you. The type of God who is powerful enough to make real and tangible change happen and who we believe is active in this room right now through the Holy Spirit. We all came to church today partially because we believe that God is going to work through his Holy Spirit to bring us together as a church community and bring us closer to him, right? And we say we believe these things, but I think most of us don't live with the expectation that God is going to be that active. And if you don't think that's you, just picture this. Imagine E.T., the alien, beams down into your life for a whole week and he just watches you, everything that you do. He watches how you interact with your friends. watches how you interact with your family. He watches you when you go to work. Would E.T. be able to pick up on the fact that you believe in a God who is active and personal and powerful? For many of us, I think the answer would be no. I think many of us don't live with the expectation that God is going to be working in our daily lives. And I'm not saying that we need to expect God to do everything we ask. Like, obviously, if I were to pray today for $10 million, it would be really silly of me to expect God to give me $10 million, right? Everyone here would be like, yeah, Paxton, that was a silly prayer to pray. And that's because you know that God isn't about making people rich. He never promised that he was going to make all Christians rich. But there are things that God did promise to us. There are things that God says he's about doing and that he wants to do in the world today. And even in those things, we still don't expect God to work in our daily lives. Let me give you some examples. The first one that I want to go through is in our discipleship or our mentorship. God says that he's going to use our relationships and our mentorship to grow us closer to God, right? But when I go and I disciple my friends or when I mentor people, I all too often think about what I need to say to that person or what they're capable of changing in their life. Maybe sometimes I won't even tell them what I think they need to hear because I'm like, they're not ready for that. When really I should be thinking, God is going to do something in this person's heart. God wants me to tell them what they need to hear. It's not my job to make them ready. God should be working. I'm expecting God to work. Why am I focusing on my ability to disciple people and not God's ability? Or in our marriages. In our marriages, when we get into a fight and we're afraid that we're going to be split apart, oftentimes we either fight and we yell at each other and get really angry or we just don't have the fight at all and we just let it boil, right? We just run away. Which is strange if we believe in a God who is active and powerful and personal and who says that our marriages are meant to last until our death, right? Why aren't we immediately saying in that fight, hey, I know this hurts right now and I know we're fighting, but we need to take this before God and pray about this. Aren't you expecting that God's going to do something there when you pray that prayer God, we need help in our marriage. Are you expecting him to change your spouse's heart or to change your heart or to change your circumstance? Or are you like, eh, I don't think God cares enough about my marriage for that. Or I just don't expect him to move in that way. Or in our morality, God says that he cares deeply about us being moral, upright people. And yet when we're deep in a sin struggle, oftentimes we go to Google searching our problem, 
seeing how we can solve it, or we go to a top-rated YouTube pep talk to get us out of our issue, when really we believe that we have a personal God who says he wants to be with us and help us through this problem, why aren't we taking our addictions with pornography or our materialism or our self-righteousness before God and saying, God, I need you to change me, and then expecting him to show up? And I think we just don't expect God to change us that deeply. And something is wrong here. Our on-paper theology, the things that we say we believe about God, aren't transferring into real application in our lives. And that's a problem. We need to understand that God is powerful, but when we think we need him, he's not even on our radar, right? So here's what I want to say this morning. Here's what I think is the big idea that you want to take away today and that we're going to look at in the passage. It's this. Living for God should be expectant living. Living for God should be expectant living. The Christian life should involve a paradigm shift and a change in thinking. We should be expecting, assuming, praying for God to show up. We should be making decisions based on the fact that we believe God is active in our lives, right? That's what we say we believe. And so, I think that when I think about this, I think about kids on Christmas morning. Many of you have children, right? I used to be a kid once, and when I think about my experience as a child on Christmas morning, I remember being so excited. How many of your kids wake up and on Christmas morning and they act like it's no big deal, just a normal day? Not very many. I remember when I was a kid, I would wake up around 3 a.m. for my first try to get my parents to open the presents. I come into their room and be like, guys, you know it's Christmas, right? There's presents downstairs. I know it. We've, I've seen it before. We should go open them. And I'd, they'd be like, no, go back to bed. Come back 6 a.m. Hey, it's been three hours. I've been awake. <laughs> I am ready to open those presents. And usually by then they'd let me go, right? But that's how we should be. We should be like that. Ever since Christ died and was raised from the dead, we should have been living in expectation, excited expectation for the things God was going to provide in our lives, for the things he was going to provide through the Holy Spirit so we could further his kingdom every day, seeing him redeem more and more of our lives, right? So we say we believe. And so we're going to look today at a story in the Bible that shows a people who live expectantly. Specifically, we're going to look at the Israelites as they try to carry out a command that would have been completely impossible for them to do without God. Now, many of you have heard this story. It's the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. But if you haven't heard it before, let me just give you a brief summary. Basically, it was like this. God promises the Israelites a land in Canaan. And he says, you guys need to go and take over this land. And if you're going to do that, you're going to need me to do it because you're not a big army. And so they go into the land and their first big obstacle is this huge fortified city called Jericho. And God says, hey, you don't need to worry about that. I'm going to let you take the city. We just walk around it for seven days, and then I'm just going to blow the walls up, and you're going to be able to take the city. He says collapse, but I like to think of it as explosion. So <laughs> they do this, and they go, and the walls do fall, and they take the city. And many of you have heard that story, but what's easy to miss about it is it's really a story of people living really expectantly. The Israelites would never have been able to live expectantly, or they would never have been able to take the city without living expectantly. And I'm going to show that today, as we go through the story. So as we go through the story, there's going to be three puzzle pieces, 
Three big puzzle pieces that help us get the picture of what it means to live expectantly. And each one of those puzzle pieces is going to have applications for our personal lives at home. And it's also going to have applications for our church as a community. So here's puzzle piece one. Puzzle piece one is knowing what God has promised. Knowing what God has promised. You are probably thinking, that's so obvious, Paxton. Of course we need to know what God has promised. We're going to expect what God is going to do. And that's true, but we're a super forgetful people. And what forgetful people need is reminders, right? Right. Yeah, and so we need to familiarize ourselves daily with what God has promised for our lives if we're going to change the way we live. Okay, so let's see this in the text. So after the death of Moses, this is on page one of Joshua, by the way. This is the first thing that happens in the whole book. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give to them, the Israelites. I will give you the, every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river to the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea and the rest. No one will be able to stand against you all of the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. God has basically laid out the rest of the book of Joshua in this first line, right? He's told Joshua, look, Joshua, here's how it's going to be. I'm going to give you all the land that you set foot on. I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses. So you got to be strong and courageous. And he's doing this on purpose because he knows if Joshua is going to be able to live expectantly, he needs to know what God is doing in the next couple days. And so Joshua knows this too. And immediately after this, in the chapter, Joshua goes and tells everyone else in the Israelite army this exact same thing because he knows for them to live expectantly and to follow God's will, they need to know what God is doing. So I would say today this is still true. Oh, wait, here's the thing though. You're all going to say to me, Paxton, these are super specific promises. If God told me tomorrow at 8.30 I need to wake up and I need to go outside and pick up a newspaper and then evangelize to my neighbor and then lead them to Christ over the next couple of days, I would do that. I would be way more expectant. That would be really specific for me. And I'd say, yeah, you're right. God hasn't been just as specific with us. But there are still things that God has promised for our lives that we can know and can change our actions, right? And I think that if we're going to live expectantly, we need to familiarize ourselves daily with what God has promised us. And if you feel like you don't know what God's promises for your life are, this is for you. All right, this next part. If you're not aware of God's promises for your life, it's going to be super hard for you to live expectantly. Because for you to live expectantly, you need to know what God is doing, what he's promised to do, so you can know where to look for him and where to step out in faith. And the only way to really do that is to read your Bible. This doesn't get much more simple than that. God has given us a piece of paper that tells us all of these promises. And many of you are thinking, oh my gosh, read my Bible. Ugh. Reading my Bible. We need to spend time in devotionals daily. And being in devotional in your Bible shouldn't be a chore. These promises that God gives us in the Bible are powerful promises. They should move you to change your life. If you even believed, if I even believed, some of these promises, really, it would change the way I was living. And I'm going to just remind you of a couple of promises that many of you have probably heard before right now. I'm going to read, well not read, I'm going to cite some texts, and I'm going to tell you these promises. And just think, what would, what would it mean for me 
if I were to really internalize these promises and to really live them out in my life, all right? So if you're here today and you feel like God hasn't revealed himself to you and he's not going to reveal himself to you, you can't find where God is, you can't see him, he's just not around, God promises that all those who seek him with their whole heart will find him. That's Jeremiah 29, 13. If you feel like today that you're too weak to live out God's will for your life, or you're too weak in general, God promises that all of your weakness is made perfect in his power. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. If you're here today and you're addicted to something, be it pornography or drug addiction, God promises that all those who are in Christ will be set free. John 8, 36. If you feel today that you're just unloved and that no one will ever be faithful to you and no one will ever care deeply for you, God promises that he will be faithful to you just as he was to all those who came before you. Jeremiah 31, 3. If you feel there's too much injustice in the world and that you, no one is ever going to be able to repay the wrongs that were done to you, God promises that all wrongs will be righted by him. Romans 12, 19. If you feel today that there's too much political division in your life, or there's too much racial division in your life, or there's too much religious division in your life for you to reconcile with your neighbor and your friend, God promises that through Christ, all of us are reconciled with him. And now our ministry should be that of reconciliation. If you're here today and you feel like you're too broken to ever be really forgiven or made new, God promises that in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If we believed even a couple of these things, how would that change the way you were living your life? If you really knew them in your heart and you thought God is going to follow through on his promises, right? That's puzzle piece number one. Puzzle piece number two is this. We need, as a people, need to be celebrating what God has already done. Puzzle piece number one, knowing what God promises, isn't enough to get us to really live expectantly. Living expectantly requires an emotion. It requires something specific. It requires hope. And the best way to stir up hope is to remember what God has already done in your life. So let's look at this in the passage because God specifically reminds the Israelites of what he has done. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest, yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark of the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water was flowing down to the Sea of Arabah was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed crossing on dry ground. This might seem like a run-of-the-mill miracle to you guys. You're like, okay, what are you going with here? But this is an intentional reminder by God to the Israelites saying, remember what I did for you before. Because 40 years earlier, these Israelites' parents were crossing the Red Sea. God had split the Red Sea for them because they had been fleeing from Egypt during the Exodus, chased down by an army. But they came to the Red Sea, couldn't cross. God split the sea in two and they just went right on through. And that story has been told to these same people who are now crossing in front of the Jordan River. And they're thinking, oh my gosh, 
God just stopped that water just like my parents said he broke the Red Sea in two. God is with us now just like he was with my parents 40 years ago. He's going to do the same thing for us that he did for them when he saved them from Egypt. And that, imagine how encouraging that would be to know that what God had done before is going to be done again and then taking the time to celebrate that. That's what God is making them do. He's making them remember what he's done. And Joshua is not going to let them get away from this either without celebrating. So right after this, Joshua, the man in charge, says, hey guys, we need to take a moment. Let's all think about what just happened. That was awesome. All right. And so he builds a statue and then he says, look, we need to take a moment to celebrate what God has done. This is a memorial to what God just did. Let's remember what he did. Let's set this up so everyone who comes after us can look at this moment and say, wow, God is powerful. God is doing amazing things in our midst. We as a church need to be celebrating like this too. And one of the easiest ways to celebrate is to share stories. My favorite way, actually. I really love sharing stories. Many of you have amazing stories of how God has worked in your life. Ways that he's pulled you out of addiction, pulled you out of depression, things he's changed in your life, miraculous things. Those stories are the stories we need to take, be intentional about sharing and celebrating as a church community. Because when we share those stories, people will be built up in hope. They'll think, hey, that guy just told me a story about how God moved in, my li in his life and now I'm here at this obstacle and I need to know what to do and I'm going to take a step of faith because that person told me exactly what happened in their life and God came through for them so he could come through for me as well. We need to take time to share those stories. And you're going to think, Paxton, I don't want to share my story it's like, kind of like bragging. Like, I don't want to walk up to someone and be like, listen to what God did in my life yesterday. That was awesome. No, these stories are tell you are telling are glorifying God. You should be telling them like, look at what God did in my life. He saved me. He's so powerful. That story is glorifying God. And for anyone who is also pursuing God, that story is encouraging. They hear that story and they think, wow, if that is possible for them, it's possible for me to take a step of faith here too right? That's what we need to do. We need to celebrate what God has done in the, as a community. And this isn't a waste of time sharing stories either. You're not going to see immediate results from us sharing stories. You're not going to see the church just suddenly turn around. But if we take this step of faith and start sharing our stories with one another in our small groups, in our men's ministries, in our youth ministries, in our children's ministries, with our pastors, with our friends, if we share those stories, that's going to encourage people and build a culture of hope and expectation, just like Joshua is intentionally doing in this passage. And that makes all the difference for when someone comes up to an obstacle in their life and they feel like they have to take a leap of faith, they remember hey, God worked over there. God could do the same thing here, and that changes church communities. All right, so that's puzzle piece number two. Puzzle piece number three is going to sound a little controversial, but it's not. It's, I promise it's not, so brace yourself. All right, puzzle piece number three is knowing when to ignore your intuition. Now, before you jump to any conclusions about what that means, I am not saying you can take as many shots as you want this New Year's Eve. Not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. Your intuition is a very good thing. Oftentimes, God will use your intuition to guide you in obedience, right? What I am saying is our intuition is very complex. Our intuition is complex, and it can't, it's not perfect either. I like to think of it kind of like a machine, 
a machine that takes in tons of information, more information than we could ever fathom, more information than we could ever even comprehend in our conscious mind, takes all that information in and then it puts it into a little box and it pumps out and that's our intuitive reaction that we feel to a situation. And so our intuition can take into account all kinds of cool things. It can take into account the Holy Spirit. It could take into account biblical truth. It could take into account revelation. And that would be the things that prompt you to have a great intuitive reaction that has you following in obedience. But our intuition can also take into account all kinds of other information. It can also take into account past experiences, our cultural background, our trauma, things that have hurt us in the past all kinds of other things that might not always lead us to follow what God says, right? It's in those moments where our intuition does not agree with what God says that we need to choose to ignore our intuition. So let's look at this in the text. Now at the gates of, Jer- the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and have the, army, the whole army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests together and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have the seven priests carry the trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. So for context, this happens right as Joshua arrives at the city. He literally arrived and he's like walking up with his posse. He's like, the, J- the gates of Jericho are barred. Hmm. And he's probably been thinking this whole time, what am I going to do to breach this huge fortified city? Probably going to have to build some siege ladders, maybe a siege tower, maybe a ramp. I don't know what he was thinking. He probably had an ingenious plan figured out from all his battle experience or whatever. And then God comes to him and he's like, listen, Joshua, you don't need any of that stuff. All you got to do is walk around the city seven times for seven days. And I'm going to give it to you. Then the walls will just, they'll explode. And then you're going to walk in and take the city. And Joshua, I'm going to be honest, I don't think Joshua's intuitive reaction was, okay, that makes sense. He was probably thinking like, wait, you're telling me I have to tell my men they're going to walk through the desert for seven days around a city, risking ambush or attack at any time with our most valuable sacred artifact at the front of the line? Really? And then he's like, well, uh, okay. But God is telling me to do this. And so he takes a step of faith and ignores his intuition in this moment. And that is how he is able to go on and win the battle in God's way. And I think he is able to do this in part because he's already nailed puzzle pieces one and two, right? He already knows what God has promised for this moment, and he's already been celebrating in hope what God has already been doing. And so he's ready to take this leap of faith. But it still takes a lot of effort on his part to ignore everything he already knows about what it means to fight a battle, right? And so let's go back to this intuition machine. I think one of the most prevalent things that sways our intuition, especially in American culture, is our perception of subjective reality. So subjective reality means I'm not talking about the scientific facts of a situation. I'm talking about the way we see the world and how that influences our intuitive reaction, okay? So oftentimes, especially in the Madison area, people are gonna throw in your face, they're gonna say, hey, you say you believe in God. But if I look at your life and I look around, I don't really see God working in your life. 
I kind of think you're a little wrong here. Like, if I look at the world, it doesn't seem like God's working. What are you thinking? What are you even doing? Happens to me all the time on campus. And we, in that moment, need to say, no, 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 no. My perception of reality doesn't change what God is doing. My perception of reality is independent of what God is doing. Think about the Israelites in this story. They walk around this city for seven days. That's a week. Once a day. And then seven times on the seventh day. There is no indication in the text that anything changed about the wall that whole time. Nothing changed. Their reality and the way they saw the wall was the same. No cracks in the wall. No tower had fallen. Six days in, I'm sure they were probably like, I don't think anything's going to happen. God hasn't said anything. Like, what's going on? That is how it feels in our life when we look and we try to step out in faith over and over and over again. And we're like, where is God? Where is God? Don't let reality rule over your life and rule over your intuition. All right? God is working even when we don't see him. Don't let six days or seven days and six extra walks stop you from walking on that last time where the walls do fall down and you do see God move. We aren't called to step out in faith over and over and over again and then just expect God to show up every time. We're just called to step out in faith and trust God to be who he is, who he says he is, right? So this is really what I'm talking about. We, this is the definition of faith, really. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, it says we are to be certain of what we do not see, not certain of what we do see. Did you hear that? We're to be certain of what we do not see, not certain of what we do see. Don't let reality rule over your life. Don't let your perception of how the world is working tell you that God is not active and working to change things in your life. Okay? I have a story that I think illustrates this pretty well. When I was in eighth grade, I had a friend. His name was Ben. And Ben went on a mission trip to Honduras. And while he was there, he made really deep connections with these people who were living and going to school in a garbage dump. These people were kids. And as he was there, his heart really went out to them, and he thought, I need to do something for these kids to help them get out of this situation. And so he went home to the United States after his mission trip, and he, his big idea as an eighth grader was to host a basketball tournament. Pretty classic, right? He wants to host a basketball tournament and then take all the proceeds and send it back to Honduras to an organization called AFE that was working with those kids. And so he took this idea, and he felt like God was calling him to do it, and so he took it to the people, the adults at church, and asked them for help. He said, hey, I have this idea. Will you help me out? I could use some funding and some volunteers. And the people at the church, the adults, saw this eighth grade boy and they saw that he was on fire for God, but they said, no, Ben, honestly, I, I think you're a great guy. You seem like you're doing the right thing. You seem like you're on fire for God, but you don't have any of the volunteers for this. You don't have the venue. You don't even go to school at this high school where you want to have it. Um, you don't have the referees. You don't have the connections. I just think this isn't going to work. You should probably do something a little more conservative. I like what you're doing. Maybe like do a big fundraiser or something. And then he sent him on his way. And Ben told me years later that he, after having that conversation, felt a little bit the same way. He was thinking in his intuition, maybe they're right. I am only in eighth grade. I'm only in eighth grade. I don't know if I can do this. I, I don't have the connections. I don't have the referees. I don't have any of that stuff. But he thought, what would God tell me to do? I feel like God is calling me to do this. 
And so he thought, God would say, Ben, do you trust me? Ben, don't you think my heart also goes out for those kids in that garbage dump? Aren't you going to expect me to provide for you like I said I would provide for everyone? And Ben said, I, I guess I do. And so he went and he told everyone that he was going to host a basketball tournament. Everyone at school, everyone at church, at risk of ridicule from everyone who told him not to do it, right? And it, went, it came through. God showed up and gave him the referees. God gave him the connections. God gave him the venue. God gave him the food, the volunteers, and everything. And he raised thousands of dollars for seven years straight. Seven years, this basketball tournament went on at Middleton. It was called Slam Dump. Seven years, started by an eighth grade boy, raised thousands of dollars. That's crazy. We need to celebrate what God has done. There should be clapping now. You should be clapping. God did something amazing, right? God did something amazing. But here's the thing. If you're in eighth grade in here, could you just stand up real quick? There you go. Thanks, Becca. That is the age of the person who started a multi-thousand dollar nonprofit. Becca, no offense, but you, an eighth grader could never do that on their own. They, she's, they were in eighth grade. They don't have any of the connections. They could never have done that. God came through in that moment. It was so obvious. And that's what the coolest part about this story is because no one said to Ben, hey, Ben, you, you're really good at hosting basketball tournaments, man. Like, props to you. They said, Ben, God is working through you. Look at what God is doing through this eighth grade boy. That's crazy. God was so glorified by that. People were so encouraged by that because Ben went against his intuition, stepped out in faith, and trusted God to provide what he said he would provide, what he promised. We need more stories like that. And I know many of them are out there, but we could always have more. Guys, when was the last time that you stepped out in obedience to God against your intuition? If the answer is, I can't think of any time, you've probably missed some opportunities because God is calling us to do things that seem irrational or seem too hard or seem impossible. He's calling us to do hard things. But we need to trust God to come through on the things that he promised us he was going to come through on. So to recap, let's do it. Puzzle piece number one, we need to know what God has promised us. We need to be aware and have it on our minds so we can live expectantly. We need to be celebrating what God has already done by sharing stories of how he's working in our lives and how he's changed us so we can build hope that will help us to know when to ignore our intuition, to know when to ignore intuition and when to step out in faith even when everyone is saying that we can't do it and reality says we can't do it either. We need to trust God. Now, I think this whole sermon kind of begs a question a little bit. It begs the question, well, what if we host the basketball tournament, Paxton, and then no one shows up? What if we pray for our relative to be healed for years and they're never healed? What if God doesn't show up? Does that ruin my whole live expectantly theme? Does it? I really don't think it does. See, God is, in, is good and all-knowing and all-powerful, so it's never that he can't save you or can't heal you or can't help your event happen, can't bring you out of it, your addiction. It's that he chooses not to. For some reason, he knows in his all-knowingness that for the greater good of all people, his, your suffering has to be had. And that's hard to, to grasp, but when I think about this, I think about Mike Beresford. He's a pastor here. Many of you know him. If you didn't know this, Mike has been having pain in his knees 
for a very long time, many, 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 many years. I mean a lot of pain. He's had two re knee replacements now. And Mike has been praying with the church for this to be healed for many years as well. And it hasn't happened. Even now, he's sitting at home recovering from his second knee replacement surgery. And so I called Mike and said, Mike, how has your struggle with constant pain impacted your faith? You've prayed so often for this to be healed. How has that impacted? And he said, you know, Paxton, not at all. Who I am in Christ and who God is are completely independent of my circumstances, of my suffering. God is good even when I am hurting. That's what he said. And this is made even cooler by the fact that Mike is one of the most expectant living people I've ever met. Mike will step out in faith for anything. He always expects God to come through on his promises. Mike told me that he was praying over someone while sitting in a chair, unable to get up because of the pain in his knees, praying for their pain to be healed. And then they were instantly healed. And he's still in pain on the chair. That is expectant living. Even in the spite of the circumstances, we can't let reality rule over our expectations. God is good and he knows what he needs to do. We need to trust God to be who he says he is. Right? And so I'm going to leave you with this application. I think this is a cool application that we can all practice this year. It'd be a great New Year's resolution for you and your family. It's called this. It's called the Impossible List Challenge. All right? Sounds very cool. All right, so we are going to take on as a church this impossible list challenge. And basically what that means, we're going to write down a list of things that we believe are impossible to accomplish in our life, but we believe God promises us he's going to do. So this would be like writing down, I want to break this addiction that I've had for seven years and I haven't been able to break. I want to break, I want to revitalize this marriage that's been stagnant for 20 years. I want to do this thing that is impossible, but I know aligns with God's will and he promised would be made in my life. We're going to write down a list of those things and we're going to pray about them every day for six months. That's living expectantly. It's calling on God to do something impossible in our life. My friend Jill Reese, who works here at the church, actually did this challenge some time ago and she wrote down a list of 20 things that she believed was completely impossible for her life. And she prayed over them for six months and every single one of those things came true. Applaud. That's amazing. We celebrate what God has done. That's incredible. We need to call on God to do more of that. We need to be the people who expect God to do something incredible in our lives. So I just encourage you, pull out your phone right now and just start like th two or three ideas for this list as I close. All right? You want to do this list so we can practice living expectantly. It Make sure that these things really are something that you feel is impossible for your life. Something that you feel you can't accomplish without God. And then pray about them for six months because it's those things that we feel are impossible that are going to make it, that when they do come to pass, that everyone will look at you and say, no one will say when they look at you and that happens, wow, you really turned your life around. Nobody's going to say that. Everyone will say, look at what God is doing in that person's life. Look at how God made that turn around because you could have never done it on your own. Right? That's what we want as Christians. We want people to see us living out this life where we trust God and God is glorified by our actions and the way our lives are redeemed. Let's pray. 
God, I just thank you for today and this time to gather together as a church. I pray that we would be able to live in expectation of the things that you've promised for us. I pray that you would help us to share stories of how you've already been working so we can be encouraged by your work. I pray that you would help us all to take on a real impossibleist challenge and devote time to it so that we can see your, your power come to pass in our lives. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand with us as we respond? This next song that we're going to sing, the lyrics to this, are doing exactly what Paxton preached about. 